Now, let's also think, what do I envy? Because envy is the worst virus than, than COVID. Because as soon as we start to envy, I don't mean aspire to someone's example, but I mean envy. Kind of like, oh, I should have that. And God, I feel ripped off because I don't have that. Then we will be completely miserable until we get it. And if we ever do get whatever we envy, then we'll begin envying the next thing. And then it just repeats and it spirals. Hello, and welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today's sermon is entitled, When You Feel Like Giving Up, and was based on Psalm 73. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Sometimes we feel like giving up. It might be because anxiety spirals, and we just feel so incapacitated because of it that we wonder, do I really want to even pull the covers back and get out of bed today. Sometimes we feel like giving up because of temptations, and we feel like these temptations just keep coming around and coming around and coming around like a scratch on vinyl. Do you remember vinyl records? Okay. Some of you do. Some don't. Go to museum. You'll see them. Okay. But it's like the scratch. It just keeps coming around. And we're like, oh, these temptations. For some of us, it's deadlines at work because we're, especially with the pandemic, we're doing the jobs of two or three people and it's just overwhelming to us. For some, for students, it's midterm exams that are on the horizon. Students, I'm sorry to mention that in the sanctuary of God, but midterms exams are coming up, aren't they? Maybe it's because we're grieving the loss of someone who we love. It might be that we just feel like giving up because of the immensity of the suffering in our world. Some of us feel like giving up because of our doubts, and we felt just kind of quiet quitting on our faith. We'll just you know, we may not reject God, but, but we're just going to keep our faith at a distance because we just feel like giving up. You are not alone. Each of us have seasons where we feel like we're in a spiritual wilderness, where we feel overwhelmed by life, and where we feel like giving up. And that is so often in kind of that basement where we find ourselves that God meets us right there at those places and ministers to us. We're going to learn today from a guy named Asaph. Uh, His journey is recorded in Psalm 73. So uh, I want to invite everyone to turn to Psalm 73, page 575 in the Blue Bibles, or in your own Bible, or queue up your device, rather you're worshiping here in the house, or you're part of our church family, or a guest who's worshiping online today. Find Psalm 73. Now, Asaph was what we would call a worship pastor in the temple of Jerusalem. He composed 12 of the Psalms. So he's, he's an accomplished worship leader. He'd kind of gone viral with his career, right? Leading worship. Um, and yet God wove into the Bible like a page from his journal where he poetically writes about a crisis of faith that he experienced. And when he felt like giving up. And here's the beauty The fact that God wove this into Scripture, the Hebrew people would sing this. Imagine singing as worship songs a psalm about somebody who writes transparently, you know, I really felt like giving up on God. And the beauty of this is God invites us to bring our faith, our doubts, our joys, our sorrows, times when we're giving thanks to God and the times when we might even be feeling kind of angry with God. 
I pray that in our relationship with God and, and as a church community, we'll have a culture where church is the safest place on earth for us to be real with our joys, our sorrows, our faith, our doubt, the good times, the bad times, and in community together, we'll walk alongside each other. And so in Psalm 73, uh, join me in verse 1, where Asaph begins, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Oh, but as for me, my feet almost slipped, and I nearly lost my foothold. Asaph begins by saying, God is good. Oh, surely, certainly, no doubt God is good. But I struggle to believe that for a season of time in my life, just like all of us in different seasons of our lives. When we see what's happening in our lives or people we love or our world, we say, ah, God, you're not looking like you're so good. And there's mystery. And Asaph describes this crisis of faith by saying, I began losing my foothold. A foothold's really important, isn't it? A few years ago, it was actually um, the last Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday before the pandemic shut everything down. All right, that's how we mark time now, isn't it? You know, it's like, it's like you know, ancients used to say when the creek overflowed. Now it's like when the pandemic began, right? And so I was at a Vision New England retreat, and it was a beautiful conference center. And I was going from uh, lunch to my room, and the shortest path was this back way. And as you know, in New England in the winter, back ways are not the wisest to take. And I stepped out of this back pathway, which was uh, basically metal steps. And I took the first step, and my feet came right out from under me because it was a sheet of ice. And, and you're listening to me preach this morning when I, when I did that, right? It's like, duh, Greg. But I stepped. I wanted to save 38 seconds. I step up, and my feet come out from under me. Uh, the next morning, probably over a third of my back was covered with this huge bruise, I was so sore, I fired my laptop up because I was carrying my computer back, and my screen had broken, and it was giving kind of this psychedelic colors and everything, and uh, I, oh man, I was hurting for, for weeks. See, when we lose our foothold, it can be really damaging, it can even be deadly. Probably all of us know that from slipping, or rather it's on ice, or rather it's in our car when we hit black ice. And, and what Asaph's really saying is, it's like somehow I reached this place where I didn't notice the ice and my feet began to slip out. The foothold of my faith began to slip out from under me. Isn't that descriptive? Well, why? What was it that caused him to begin to lose the foothold of his faith? In verse 3, he says, Well, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, they have no struggles, and their bodies are healthy and strong, and they're free from all the kind of burdens that are common to people. What Asaph's really saying is, if wicked people prosper, if injustice seems to be winning, why bother with faith? If wicked people seem to be happy and doing better than me, why should I bother to like, live in the midst of God's loving, gracious boundaries? Psh, why don't I just go live like the rest of the world? But here's a question. Is this an accurate perspective? See, Asaph has myopic vision. He's, he, he has a blurred vision because, 
there's a great difference between the image we see at a distance and the reality that we see close up. We live in an image-driven culture. Think about it. We, we fawn over beautiful celebrities or famous athletes or influential creative business people or media influencers. Or we can even look at our neighbor and say, oh, look at their family. Look at their house. Look at their career. And we can begin to envy. But, but the truth is, every so often we'll like, on our news feed, there'll be those strange stories. I don't know why they're there. And it'll be like, you know, something like Julia Roberts was seen getting coffee. And there's a picture. I'm like, wow, that's today's news. She got coffee. Wow. Or it'll be, you know, Kim Kardashian was walking her dog on the Santa Monica Pier. You know, but we look, don't we? And you look at it and you say, you know, that, they, that's not how they look in the movies. That's not how they look in their airbrushed, digitally remastered pictures. They, they actually look kind of like normal people, don't they? Out with their sweats and whatever like that, like the rest of us live. And then we also begin to read how many people are in rehab or in the midst of court or in the midst of scandals, and we realize the title of the book by John Ortberg. Great title. Everybody's normal till you get to know them. Isn't that true? See, when we look at a distance at people, we can in our minds think, wow, look at, they, they, they're not plagued by anything and they're so happy and they have so much and they have these carefree lives. From a distance, we see that image and we can begin to feel envious and we feel like, God, you're ripping me off because I'm following you. I'm trying to be faithful to you and I don't have these things. But when we begin to see kind of behind the scenes at who people really are, we begin to realize that's, that's a myopic vision. That's, that's not reality. Now, <clears throat> let's also think, what do I envy? Because envy is, is a, worse, um, a worse disease or it's, it's a worse virus than, than COVID. Because as soon as we start to envy, I don't mean aspire to someone's example, but I mean envy. Kind of like, oh, I should have that. And God, I feel ripped off because I don't have that. Then we will be completely miserable until we get it. It'll rob us of our joy, of our peace, of our security, and we'll be miserable until we get it. And we'll do whatever it takes to get it, even if it compromises our values or begins to shape us in ways that are damaging. And if we ever do get whatever we envy, then we'll begin envying the next thing. And we realize, oh man, envy is like a disease. And then it just repeats and it spirals. And this becomes challenging when it becomes pervasive in any culture. Move down to verse 6. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity, and their evil imagination has no limits. Here's a portrait of like a necklace. Now, if someone gives us a necklace, let's just say, you know, when I give Carolyn a necklace, and I've given her some necklaces, okay? When I give her a necklace, or when someone gives it to you, do you like tuck it in your blouse? Oh, I'm going to just cherish this where no one can see it. Do we put it in like a jewelry box and say, I'm never going to take that out? Of course not. What do we do? We wear it. And when we wear it, I mean, so often jewelry, um, really, it's to accent our look, isn't it? It's to, in many ways, uh, be a sign for some people of wealth or status. And sometimes Julie can make a statement. And here's, 
Here's what Asaph's really saying. Whenever something in our culture, whenever sin or, or anything damaging, anything astray from God becomes popular, becomes almost worn by a culture, it becomes persuasive. Isn't it amazing how any culture in the world in a short amount of time can, can just kind of completely follow whatever the dominant paradigm of that culture? And you realize, how'd that happen so fast? Now, sometimes that's good if they're good things for the flourishing of all peoples, but sometimes they can be so damaging and depraved and painful. And Asaph is saying, look, I looked around and people seem to be doing great without God. I began to envy them and it began to become popular and persuasive and I felt like I was missing out. How popular, how persuasive? Move down to verse 10. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. People turn to them. This is influence. Do we see people, worldviews, movements that quickly become popular and persuasive? Again, sometimes this can be beautiful, but sometimes it can be almost seductive. We'll wake up one day and we realize, I'm really being influenced by the culture around me in ways that I didn't even fully realize. And it's like drinking up, lapping it up. And we live in a parched culture of so many people, many of us, but so many people hungry for hope, thirsting for love, lonely and looking for community, feeling empty without God. And so because of that, it can make people vulnerable to chase after things that they might never have before. And that can be influential for us as well. But here's really kind of a, a next step worldview that Asaph shares. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High really know anything? See, what he's saying is if there's no God, there's really no consequences. Who cares? If I'm just going to die and I'm going to be put into the ground and that's the end of things, who cares? And, and there will also be eternal injustices. Think about it. It means the person who died young, the person who was raped and murdered, I mean, choose whatever it is. That's the end of it. It's an eternal injustice if there's no eternity where God takes the scales and brings justice. It also means there's no restraint for us. Um, I, have, I had a friend in college, Lee, Lee Pimentel, who, who played basketball. I played baseball, he played basketball. He lived just down um, the dorm floor. He was from the Bronx, great guy. But he'd lived kind of this crazy life before he came to Christ. And he used to say this often. He would say, you know, if I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell in a Cadillac. Because, you know, if it isn't for God, I'm going to live however I want. And I'm going to do whatever I want. Why not? It doesn't matter. And he said that's how he lived for years of his life. Until Jesus began to change his life and his outlook. There's no restraint. There's no consequences. It becomes nihilism for us. I want to share with you, I am most vulnerable when I forget God's presence with me. I become most vulnerable when I don't consider the consequences. When I forget, hmm, I wonder what this might lead to. And I live in the moment. And I forget that we're part of this bigger, I'll, I'll, I'll say, meta-narrative of the story of God. Where who we are and what we do matters, here and now and for eternity. And so now Asaph begins to question, was my faith even worth it? 
Why bother? Verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new, new punishments or new affliction. What he's saying is, has my faith just been in vain? Has it been worth it? It would be like us today saying, is it really worth it to follow Christ? Is it really worth it to work hard, to, to take off a cultural lens and put on Christ's lens and see the image of God in every person I meet who has equal dignity and value? Is it really worth it to do that? Is it worth it to really care for the poor and work toward justice? Is it really worth it for me to remain faithful in my marriage? Is it really worth it for me to make sacrifices, to be generous, to follow in the footsteps of Christ? And really, if we're beginning to think it's in vain, and this is what Asaph's really saying, I wasn't getting from God what I thought I deserved. That's what happens when we say, is my faith in vain? You know, God really wasn't delivering to me what I thought I had earned from God. So here's the question. Is my faith more about God serving me? God, you're my sugar daddy, and if you deliver this list of things to me, then I will follow you. We've probably all been in a relationship where we were used. It's toxic, isn't it? And God says, I love you too much to let us have a toxic relationship where it's only about God the genie, rub the bottle, if you don't deliver, I'm gone. That's not, that's not a real relationship. And that will shape us more self-centered. And it will mar the image of God within us and damage our witness as opposed to being more Christ-centered in our lives. See, is our faith about, God, you need to be serving me, or me, God, I, I want to be serving you? Not to earn anything, but because I want to be shaped more like you. And I want the world to see who you really are in a culture where there's been so much marring and damaging a witness of who Jesus really is. Here's the question. Is God a means for us to get to something or is God the ends? Where we say, God, you are enough. Now guide me to honor you in this world. We will spend the rest of our lives. If you think I have that wrapped up, no way. See, we will all be on that daily journey of discerning, God, how can I find my greatest pleasure, my greatest heart's affection, my greatest sense of calling in you? Not as a means so that you will then owe me and you have to deliver, but instead... I will stand on your promises, but God, I trust that you will remain with me and that you have eternal promises for me and help me to be shaped more like you. Well, Asaph also realizes, wow, especially as like a worship pastor in the temple, he realizes, you know, this could really damage some people's lives. Verse 15, if I had said, hmm, I will speak thus or I'll speak like this, I would have betrayed I would have done damage to other people. Let's remember this. Asaph is drawing something out for us that our life has impact. The next time we're tempted to sin, to transgress, to cross a boundary, and we think it's private, no one will know. It, it won't make any difference. Remember this. Our lives have a ripple effect in, in like the pond of our lives. And that everything we do will potentially impact our marriage, it will have generational impact for our children. It could impact our witness with our friends. It could change how people view Christ on our campus or in our workplace. And it can do great either inspiring of people to follow Christ or toxic damage in the church. 
Is our life more inspiring or more damage because of the way we're living our lives and the things that we're saying? It's an ongoing challenge. Now, aren't you glad God doesn't leave it here? Have a good depressed Sunday, okay? You know, but thankfully, now comes the hinge of the passage. And the hinge, the change point, the trajectory change comes in verse 17. I was thinking all this until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. See, he's changing his lens. He's putting kind of God's lens back on. See, I, I think what he's kind of recognizing is, wow, you know, God rescued me by his grace how could I now give that up? And, and it says that he entered the sanctuary. Now, we don't know rather that sanctuary means temple worship. You know, he, he went into the temple. Or, or rather, it means like in the sanctuary of his soul, he's reading Scripture, praying. We don't know. But somehow, he became centered again with God in his life. Here's what's fascinating. Here's part of this hinge change. Before verse 17... Asaph always refers to God in the third person. He's talking about God. Starting now, after verse 17, he refers to God as you. Huge difference. He's talking about God. Now he's talking to God. And he's wrestling with this with God. What a difference that that makes. And so he he realizes that there's a huge final destiny that he'd forgotten all about. Once again, I want to share, I am most vulnerable and have made the dumbest mistakes in my life when I've forgotten the consequences, when I've forgotten the future. That's when I'm most vulnerable. Now, here's what's fascinating. See, Asaph outwardly, Asaph would have been looked great. He, he, he composed, you know, a, a, like 13 of the Psalms. He was like a popular worship leader. They probably would have had a concert, you know, in Manhattan for him, right? And it would have gone viral. And yet within himself, he knows, oh God, I'm desperate. I'm feeling like I'm going through the motions, God. But then he has this breakthrough. And, and he realizes, that, matter of fact, I wonder, I don't know, but... I just wonder if it was in the sanctuary in Jerusalem where he entered into. You know, one of the most important things that happened in the temple were the sacrifices. I wonder if he was in the temple. I don't know. This is thus wonder Greg, not the the saith the Lord, but I wonder. If he looked out and and he saw this, this graphic, bloody sacrifice of the lambs in the temple, he said, oh God... That's how vile my sin is before you. But you're willing to do whatever it takes, even what is bloody and painful and awful to atone for my sins. That would be like us today looking to the cross and saying, Jesus, you made this bloody sacrifice, not for yourself. I want to remind us, God God is perfectly self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything from us. God wasn't lonely, so he came to rescue us. God chose to rescue us for us to be his kids and that we might then portray, give glory to who God is in our broken world. And so when we look to the cross, oh God, it's like I'm stepping in into your temple. Oh God, 
that's what Jesus you did to rescue me. How could I just wander away from the lover of my soul? He continues on in verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. This is critically important for us to understand, to help protect ourselves. He's giving a portrait of like a dream. Have you ever had a dream where you wake up and it was so vivid, it, it took a little while to like, wait, no, okay, no, that wasn't real. Oh, I'm glad that wasn't real, right? Okay. Because it seems so real. And what he's saying is, when we are tempted, when, when we enter into sin, what's really happening somewhere within us, our minds are avoiding reality. It's almost like, it's almost like this is a dream world. It's like this isn't real. There really won't be consequences. Uh, God really doesn't see this. It's like the fantasy of this really doesn't matter. But then someday we awake to the reality, don't we? And that's what he's reminding us. Watch for that. I felt that. When you're in this place and you realize, I want to sin. And we all do sometimes, if we're honest. You know, I, I really do kind of want to sin. But... And then we can enter into this narrative where it's almost like we're in this, I don't know, in this kind of echo chamber where everything doesn't really exist. God's not there and it really doesn't matter what we do. But then someday we'll awaken from that dream with a lot of regret. Well, Asaph kind of begins to, to wrap up with the blessings in other words, why bother to follow God? And in verse 23, he says, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you'll take me into glory. Notice the word yet. He's saying yet. What I realize is God has still been with me. By his grace, God felt par far away, but God's hand has been there the whole time guiding me. God has not rejected me and God doesn't reject his children. Asaph realizes God has been with me, God's been holding my hand, God has guided me with his counsel. I remember when I was a kid, I don't know, I was maybe eight, nine years old, and my father and I went to um, uh, a professional baseball game, okay, triple A game. I think there were like eight, nine thousand people there, and and as we're leaving, a great time together, you know, the, it's, uh, the concourse is packed, so we're kind of threading between people, and I suddenly realized I don't know where my dad is. Now, when you're like an eight-year-old, that's panic, right? But, you know, and you start dreaming like, oh, dad's going to drive home, and he's going to forget it, and then he's going to wake up in the morning to say, where's Greg, and I'm going to be here alone. And, and you have all these things that happen when you're eight years old. Um, and then suddenly, like, through a couple of people, packed con concourse, this, this big, strong, loving hand reached out and just took my hand gently and just kind of guided me. Didn't say anything, just kind of nodded to me, and we went off together. I think that's the portrait that Asaph sang. God, I just felt alone. I was, I was questioning, I was doubting you, I didn't know. But, but God, you've actually always been there. I just didn't recognize that you're the faithful God, the shepherd of my soul. And so Asaph wraps it up and he says, well, in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What Asaph sang, and what I believe we can say is, who else? What else? 
Where else can we go to have the deepest needs of our hearts met? To have strength even when life fails. See, when we fail, our job won't always give us a lot of strength. Right? But when we fail, God is the strength of our hearts. Where there's grace even in the midst of our doubts, like Asaph is sharing with us, that our identity is not about our performance or our appearance or our success, but simply because we're God's beloved kids. And that we have the most certain promises in an uncertain world we could ever imagine, God's presence with us and God's eternal home designed for us. That's the God who he almost walked away from. And he realizes, oh God, how good it is to be with you. And he wraps up beautifully, verse 27, he says, and by the way, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to share my faith story. I'm going to share my testimony. And God honored it, wove it into Scripture, and 3,000 years later, we're studying it today and we're learning from Asaph. Isn't that beautiful? And the truth is, you have a testimony to share. You have a story to share about what Christ has done on the cross for you. That God is with you even in the painful seasons of life, even though He may not have felt near. That God has been gracious to you and me when we've wandered astray from God. And that God can redeem even painful experiences like Asaph to speak into and to inspire and give hope to people, even 3,000 years later. Do you feel like giving up? Let's remember the consequences. Let's remember God's love who has not let go of our hands. Let's remember that Jesus knows experientially everything that we go through. If you're grieving, Jesus grieved the loss of his father. Maybe we're struggling financially. Jesus grew up in a home on the edge of poverty. Maybe we feel work stress. Jesus was a small business owner who had to pay his taxes to Rome, pay a livable wage, have demanding customers. Maybe we're far away from home. Jesus knows what it is to be a refugee and flee to Egypt. Maybe we've had some legal issues. Jesus knows what it is to be executed by the state. Maybe we feel rejected. Jesus knows what it is to be rejected because he reached out to marginalized people. Jesus understands. Jesus knows. Matter of fact, I think Jesus was even sexually tempted. Don't ever think that there weren't women who looked at Jesus and said, boy, this is the only man who's ever really loved me. Right? God knows what we're experiencing and is compassionate toward us. And the, God's Spirit will guide us day by day, moment by moment. I leave us with this. God's love is the only love that we can't lose. It's the only love that we can never lose. It's the only love that if we fail isn't cancel culture. Because we may fail and God will not deny His love for us and like the Good Shepherd continue to pursue to bring us back home to His heart. And God's love is the only love that if we die it gets better. Because we'll be in the presence of God. Let's help each other not to give up. And when we do, let's help restore each other as the hands and feet and voice of Jesus with each other. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. 
Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.